Hey, tennis fans, and welcome to another edition of Matchpoint Canada This Week, the official podcast of Rogers Cup. And we are here on site at the Aviva Centre for day two of the event and day two of our podcast. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre. Remember, you can find us on Twitter at Matchpoint Can. You can find me at Ben Lewis SN590. You can find Mike at Pro Tennis Fan. Now, coming up on this episode, we will hear from Mississauga's Bianca Andrescu of course, uh, both getting so excited uh, for that blockbuster first-round match coming in the evening session with Jeannie Bouchard. But uh, as we saw, Mike, already on day one, leading into day two, so many great players taking the courts out of Viva Center, an already fantastic atmosphere to begin our tournament. It's my favorite day of any tournament is the Monday of the main draw, the first day of official uh, play, because all of the courts are going to be in action. You've got the most number of matches that you're going to see all week long. Uh, if you're a tennis fan, I mean, the tickets are the most reasonably priced on that day, too. So to me, that's like win-win because you get to see the most number of players. You get to see all your favorite players, even the ones who have a first-round buy, are going to be on the practice courts. I mean, today at one point on the four main practice courts here in Toronto, I saw Venus Williams on one, uh, Caroline Wozniacki on the other, uh, Karolina Pliskova and Naomi Osaka just lined up one next to the other. And as a tennis fan, I mean, you're seeing all the stars of the game and you're getting some great matches. The place is just buzzing. And it's uh, it's the most exciting time for me, whether I'm a fan or in the media. Uh, it's always been my favorite time of a tournament. Yeah, and I think that's kind of a rare feature of this uh, sport really in a way to get that sort of up close access of these players uh, particularly when they are on the side courts uh, and on those practice courts doing their sessions you can get up really really close everybody has an opportunity to take a fantastic uh, photo so many of these players are great and accommodating with fans uh, so it's really not out of the realm of possibility to say well I got Venus Williams autograph today or uh, you know I, I saw Simona Halep from five feet away these things happen when you're down here these players Players are so obliging. Like, I'm just so impressed. They'll be out there on court for like an hour. Sometimes they'll move to another court, do a second hour of practice in the hot sun. You'd think they'd want to come off and immediately disappear. They'll sign. They'll take selfies. And not just one or two, but like Osaka was out there and signed and took selfies with everybody until she was done. Jeannie Bouchard got off court and she was followed by fans as she left the court. And she would stop and she would do the same thing. So it's just really, really impressive. I don't know if every sport is like that. I remember as a kid actually chasing hockey autographs growing up in, in Montreal. And, you know, some were okay, but I got turned down by Wayne Gretzky. I got turned oh, yeah. down by Marc Messier. Uh, and that sticks with you. I mean, here I am in my late 30s, and I remember those moments as a kid. Mm-hmm. And these kids today are going to remember the moments they had with their favorite players who were just taking the time to make their their day and their tournament special. Yeah, certainly. And it's already been a special uh, day of action to get started. Already fantastic players have taken the court and some early results, some early upsets. Uh, things to mention, I suppose. Johanna Conta of Great Britain showing up. Uh, she played some great tennis on the clay court swing uh, leading into Wimbledon and then over in the hardcourt swing hasn't done as well and young upstart Ukrainian Diana Yastremska gets an impressive win to to begin her campaign here. Yeah that was the opening match of the tournament on center court and uh, it's funny because people you know they know the names you know the established names your casual tennis fans or casual sporting fans they don't know the Diana Yastremska so Mm -hmm. to most people that I saw watching what I overheard was 
who is this young kid? Boy, she really came out of nowhere. But I think if you look at the results this year for for people who were plugged in, this isn't really shocking. To me, when I looked on paper, I put it at 50-50. I think I even might have th- thought that Yastrzemska was maybe a slight favorite just because she seems to have such a, a high curve this year in terms of her progression as a player. She's won a couple of titles. Um, even though she lost to Conta on uh, grass earlier this summer, uh, I think here on the hard courts, uh, definitely put it at an even one. So 6-3-6-2, which was quite the uh, routine sort of scoreline for Yastrzemska. She won over a lot of new fans today on center court in Toronto. Yes, uh, she she certainly did. Uh, for most people who probably hadn't heard her name yet, a uh, great moment for her getting a nice result there. We also had uh, American player Jennifer Brady uh, get started on the winning note uh, against Kiki Mladenovic, who's had struggles really in the single side over the past couple seasons. That was pretty routine over on Grandstand. And Elise Mertens, a probably more well-known name, uh, somewhat established, and, and she's been inside the, the top 15 before. She's reached a semifinal of a Grand Slam. She gets through as well, and uh, the importance of that is we now know uh, Serena Williams' first-round opponent for Wednesday night. Yeah, Serena's got to start against Elise Mertens, who's going to already have had a, a match under her belt. And Serena, to me, I, I don't know how much you've seen her in practice this week, but hasn't looked to be really 100% or even close to it. I've seen other players, you know, who have progressed this week and gotten stronger and are hitting their stride, like Bianca Andreescu, for example. And I haven't seen that yet with Serena. So, I mean, she does still have some time to to round into form. But uh, this is going to be a tricky start. And that's the thing with these these tournaments is you've got such a deep draw that you can't sort of like just ease your way into it uh, as we saw in some matches the ones you mentioned also uh, late this evening Monday evening had uh, Yelena Ostapenko look really solid uh, against uh, taking out Caroline Garcia in a in a tough opening match so you've got to be prepared otherwise you're going to find yourself on the outside real quick yeah certainly and then that was a great uh, side court headline match of two excellent players one a former French Open champion who has really struggled with form for a uh, long Long stretches of time, but she shows glimpses. And uh, you and I watched that match, and I thought uh, Ostapenko was really, really dialed in, especially on the forehand side. Garcia looked a little helpless there. So Ostapenko moving on uh, with a nice 6-3, 6-3 win. Maybe she can gather some moment- momentum in the North American hardcourt swing. Belinda Bencic taking care of business uh, quite handily, which was nice. Uh, Sophia Kennan, the American, also uh, moving on. She beat uh, Sei Suwei of Taiwan. Yeah, Bencic, I mean, remember that she was the champion from here four years ago when she was just 18 years old. So right. certainly feels comfortable here. She's admitted she's really happy to uh, to be back. It's going to be interesting to see if she can recapture that magic. And uh, just to mention before I forget, but Kiki Mladenovic, who you mentioned earlier, yes. uh, I haven't seen her coach, Sasha Bajan, here, um, who are her relatively new coach. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of surprised at that. I don't know what the, the backstory is. Um, the last time he was here, he was uh, coaching Caroline Wozniacki, actually, two years ago. And in that time, obviously, he coached Naomi Osaka, who won her first uh, two Grand Slams under his charge. Um, funny story, I saw him nearly get um, decapitated by a tree branch when he was riding <laughs> on a golf oh, cart in Toronto two years ago. He wasn't looking the direction the cart was going, waving at some fans, and he turned at the last moment, just saw the tree branch in time to duck. Oh, goodness. Okay. All right. Well, uh, glad he's uh, safe and okay. We'll see if uh, Sasha Bashan uh, comes through. Maybe, I, I assume, Kiki Mladenovic is going to be part of the doubles draw where she has uh, had had so much freaking success in the past. So if you're a Kiki fan, there's probably still an opportunity to see her play. 
We discussed the 16-year-old Layla Annie Fernandez and this opportunity for her. She played fantastic in Quebec, ITF title in Gatineau in singles and doubles, finals in Granby. Uh, she was positive and upbeat heading into this tournament and the opportunity didn't quite work out uh, probably the way she imagined against uh, Marie Buskova losing in straight sets. Yeah, she had her hands full. And I think, you know, many people might have thought, oh, she's facing a qualifier to start. And, and even us, I mean, that was the best possible player or type of player that she could yeah. face uh, in many ways. Uh, but, you know, Buskova, 21 years old, that's a, that's a five-year difference. And 6-love, uh, 6-1. I was glad that Fernandez was able to avoid the, the double bagel. Just take a little something positive out of it, at least in that second set. Um, but I think the experience was a factor. Certainly nerves had to have played a factor. Playing on center court, although it was a, a not even half full center court, unfortunately, during the day here in Toronto. Um, but just different levels of players. And uh, you sort of paid attention to the uh, post-match press conference. What was Fernandez's kind of take from it at the end of it all? Yeah, it was uh, as positive as you really could ask for. She uh, she called it a great opportunity uh, just to see where her level was at. And uh, she says now she knows what she needs to really work on for next time. I, I think she understands in that moment she still has such a long way to go. Uh, curious thing about Marie Buzkova uh, in the similarities between the two players is that 2014 actually five years ago, and we have a five-year age gap between them. Uh, Buzkova actually won a, a junior double, a junior singles title uh, at the Grand Slam level. So Layla has done that as well with the French Open title. It's something Buzkova has done, and now she has that five additional years of experience. So Layla can certainly get, get there. She's on track. She's doing all the right things in terms of decisions. And, uh, you know, it was, it was great for her to win an ITF title in, in Gatineau, and then that next level up you're going to find a difference once you're playing players inside the top 100 top 50 top 20 and Buskova has worked her way into the top 100 she's she's a solidified WTA player yeah I, I would have been shocked if it went any, any other way than what we kind of saw transpire today uh, Toronto tennis fans if you want to see Leila Annie Fernandez again this year I would uh, expect that she will be playing in the Tevlin Challenger which is held right here at Aviva Center mind you indoors um, at the end of I want to say October beginning of November Yes, that's uh, that's right. And normally you get down there and uh, snap a few great photos. And that's kind of the contingent of Canadians uh, who are scrapping away on the ITF, trying to get their ranking up, build their way uh, through. We, we might see some other young names as well. Yeah, I mean, we've seen Jeannie Bouchard and Bianca Andreescu play at that tournament in the past. So it is sort of a stepping stone, a rite of passage, I guess, for young Canadian tennis players. Yes, and that's uh, a good segue for us because that's uh, the match really everybody's talking about, I think, on the grounds is Bianca Andreescu against Jeannie Bouchard. Uh, we were grateful to get the perspective from Jeannie's side. Uh, she has slumped, as we know, with eight consecutive losses, but uh, she had a very nice, upbeat perspective on, on this opportunity. She has a new coach in Jorge Tadero of Argentina, who is uh, old school, as they say, working her hard, grinding her on the practice courts. Uh, she, so she's certainly putting in the, the hours. She seems like she's in a great mood. And we also got a, a nice glimpse of Bianca Andresco on the practice courts today. And I thought she looked great as well. Yeah, really hidden hard out there. Um, harder and with more precision than I saw uh, a week ago when I first hit the grounds here and and had a glimpse at, at how she was looking out there. So that's good. She's she's building, you know, in time for the Tuesday night matchup. And uh, Jeannie Bouchard lost in doubles today with Sharon Fishman. 
Um, she had her right thigh taped up pretty heavily, and um, uh, so hopefully that's not uh, you know a concern going into the singles match. Didn't seem to be favoring it at least. So hopefully just you know kind of precautionary there, but didn't seem to hinder her. But in doubles, her and Fishman, uh, nice to see the two Canadians play together. But uh, they went out in uh, in straight sets in round one. Yes, uh, but a good opportunity to play some doubles as well. Carson Brandstein, Francois Sabanda played doubles. Uh, they exited as well in the first round. Carson Brandstein, though, I think is another young name who is uh, rising rapidly, still a teenager, and she nearly qualified for this draw in singles as well. So I, th- I think we're going to see a lot of great things uh, from her to come. Uh, we will focus, though, on the Bianca Genie side because uh, for a second time, uh, we got a chance for a sit-down with Bianca Andrescu on this podcast. Yeah. So we got to cover both sides of it. So you've, you've heard, hopefully, the Genie interview from our first Rogers Cup podcast. Here we have for you now uh, her opponent, fellow Canadian, Bianca Andreescu. Bianca, thanks uh, so much uh, for joining us. You were our very first guest on Matchpoint Canada. Uh, so it's great to speak with you again. Uh, now, I know just uh, for you returning from the, your shoulder injury, you haven't played since the French Open. Is it maybe extra special for that first tournament coming back from injury to be here in Toronto, Rogers Cup? Yeah, for sure. Um, I was supposed to play Washington, D.C. would have been nice to have a couple matches beforehand, uh, obviously, because coming back from an injury... Um, I mean, you haven't really been playing a lot and I still have to get back in the match zone, but I feel really prepared. I've been preparing really well for the last seven weeks and uh, I've been having zero pain in my shoulder. So I'm really excited for Tuesday. Now, tennis is such a, a long, grueling season, 11, almost 12 months of the year, really. So Having that two months off, although obviously you would have loved to have been playing, mm-hmm. what are some of the positives maybe that you were able to sort of do in your own life away from tennis during that time? Yeah, I've been playing a lot of tennis, especially at the beginning of the year. So um, I think it was nice to have a good two months just to myself. Um, I've learned a lot from uh, being injured. Uh, I try not to look at it as a setback, but more as a challenge. And I've been basically just figuring out what things I need to change in order to get better and in order to prevent injuries like this from happening. And um, I've surrounded myself with amazing people who have helped me stay hungry and motivated. And I'm just happy to be back on court at this point. So you still had tennis on the brain 24-7 while you were off? Well, I try not to. Uh, For me, if I think about tennis 24-7, I would go crazy. I think, well, personally, it's good for me to have a balance, um, to have a good social life as well. Just hang out with your friends because it's nice to just have downtime and to be able to talk to people not about tennis. (laughs) And uh, I know we've gotten to see practice here at Rogers Cup. Uh, you're looking like you're in great shape. Was there a point maybe in your recovery where you're realizing, I, I think my shoulder's good to go and uh, I feel ready again? Yeah, um, I've been doing a lot of rehab on my shoulder. And I think even after the first two weeks, I felt a really big difference in my shoulder. Um, I felt it's much stronger than ever before. And if you add another four weeks on top of that, um, really does a lot. So I'm looking forward to what the shoulder can do this week. 
yesterday at the draw ceremony, there was uh, quite the reaction when we saw who you were going to be playing in your first round match. Even yourself, I think you said something like, of course, like, <laughs> it, it had to be right. So yeah. what was going through your mind when you realized you're going to face Jeannie? And what does that match offer you in terms of a unique challenge, perhaps? Yeah, I was definitely in shock because there's only, I think, three Canadians in the draw. So I was pretty in awe. But that's how tennis works. You never know who you're going to pick in the first round, second round, third round. Um, so I'm just going to go out there, try not to focus on who's on the other side, like I always say, and um, just enjoy playing in front of my home crowd because I haven't played here since 2017, I think. So I'm really looking forward to it. And uh, just speaking of that opportunity, it's going to be center court Tuesday night, Aviva Center in Toronto. Are, are these the type of moments maybe you uh, dreamed of when you're growing up playing? Yeah, I live for these moments. I love playing in front of big crowds and big stages, uh, especially in my home crowd, because I think having a, the crowd support you um, really makes a difference, especially in key moments wanted to ask you about your connection sort of with Naomi Osaka. Obviously, you're both Indian Wells uh, champions. Uh, she's added a little bit more to her resume, but she's also <laughs> slightly older than you. Uh, she's talked recently about just the pressure that she's felt and, and how she's handled the, the fame and the success, in particular since her second slam in Australia. Uh, you, on the other hand, when we've spoken in the past, you've said you love the attention. It's really something that you're relishing. Uh, has that changed at all over the course of this season for you? And what do you do to sort of you know, protect yourself, if you will, at some level from all the added notoriety? Yeah, definitely. After Indian Wells, I've been getting way more attention than usual. Um, but I've been dealing with it pretty well. Uh, at first, it was overwhelming, of course, because it's something new. But um, I'm starting to get used to it. I don't want to sound cocky or anything, but um, that's part of the sport, especially when you're um, top 50, top 100 uh, now I'm top 30, which is slightly even more. And now coming back into um, competition mode and back into the Rogers Cup, I'm definitely feeling more attention. Um, but like I said, I, I'm dealing with it pretty well. I try not to go on my phone too much. I try not to look at the comments because that makes me overwhelmed and it's really nice to have uh, amazing people around me that help me stay grounded and um, look at me as more than just an athlete awesome well uh good luck on tuesday night uh and we will be watching you center court of eva center thank you very much there you have it for a second time, Bianca Andrescu on Matchpoint Canada and uh, getting set, getting geared up for that first round opponent, Jeannie Bouchard, blockbuster night session at Aviva Center. Uh, I think the shoulder injury is behind her. And as you said, and we watched her in practice as well, she hasn't been nursing it at all. I haven't noticed her sort of grabbing at it doesn't seem to be hindering her at all she has had that lengthy break uh since the french really yeah i haven't even seen like any extra stretching exercises for it so it looks like it's completely good to go at the moment i mean she said preparing for seven weeks no pain 
and and taking extra precautions this time not to make that same mistake of coming back too soon. So there you have it. Um, it it's funny for non-Canadians, they might look at this match and be like, what's all the fuss about? But here we are. We're in Canada. We're in Toronto. We've got one of our you know up-and-coming stars who's returning to action. And we've got another one that we'd like to see get back on track. So I think there's plenty of reason to have buzz for it here in the country. And, uh, you know, I hope that it's a... A, a close match. I hope that it's a competitive match, uh, unlike their one earlier this year in Newport. But at the time, Bianca was really hitting her stride. And it's going to take her, I think, a little bit of time to get into this match. Although she's the favorite in my mind, despite the fact she hasn't played since the French Open. Yeah, I think when your win-loss record on the season is 32-4, and four, uh, you have to be the consensus favorite for a type of match like this uh, against a player who does have an eight-match losing streak. We've seen Jeannie Bouchard uh, show that competitive fire and that competitive nature. If you're looking uh, for some positives for her, I suppose, kind of glass half full a couple of those losses like Wimbledon for example uh, before the kind of ugly Jennifer Brady loss she had a couple long three set matches where she just ended up on the other side of the score line so she has been competitive for stretches and uh, we saw at least in 2018 when she started to really kind of turn her season around was late summer into fall when she had a couple runs there semifinals in Switzerland and Luxembourg putting things together so you know Maybe just a fresh set of eyes. She had been playing without a coach for some time. Maybe some stability to her game is going to help her. Yeah, that that can hurt. And I think regardless of the outcome of this uh, anticipated match, I think probably for Jeannie, she's got to get a bunch of matches under her belt, maybe take it down a level and play some ITFs and, and lower level tournaments to find, rediscover that that confidence. There's still a lot of the season left, so hopefully she's able to turn it around and finish on a stronger note. Yes, and uh, for Bianca, uh, having not played for this long stretch of time, you looked back to the, the glory months of early 2019, the way she started off in Auckland, reaching that final. I think that gave her all the confidence in the world winning Newport Beach. She did so much for Canada in Fed Cup play as well against the Netherlands. Indian Wells, of course, the title there. Uh, The great thing for her and and the opportunity that lies ahead is she can really collect a lot of points in the rankings and easily uh, find her way inside that top 20, maybe creep towards the top 15 because she's not going to be defending anything. Well, the way she was playing beforehand, she certainly looked like a top 15 player to me. Yes, I I thought so. And uh, really attacking on all return opportunities, especially on the forehand side. She has a lot of variety to her game. I think Jeannie is going to play with power, so uh, we'll see uh, how that transpires. You are listening to Matchpoint Canada. It is day two Rogers Cup podcast uh, on site from the Aviva Centre in Toronto. That doesn't mean we don't have our eyes on the action in Montreal, and a lot of Canadians that play there will start with Milos Raonic because he was first up on day one on centre court and a tidy 6-4-6-4 win over Luca Pui. Some revenge for Milos from their uh, Australian Open match earlier this year, and um, you know, good for him to to do that in straight sets, to sink his teeth into the tournament. Uh, it's funny, when we were looking at the uh, order of play today in Montreal, Montreal. It looked like Davis Cup. It looked like a Davis Cup tie between Canada and France with all of those matches uh, between the two nations. And given the fact it's played in a, in a French hub like Montreal, I think that's even more fitting. Uh, so for Milos, that's good. He's going to uh, now go ahead and play another Canadian in the next round. We don't know who yet. It's either going to be Felix Ojealiasim or Vashik Pospisil at the time that we're recording here. And uh, the two of them join forces in doubles 
but unfortunately they went down by a score of 7-6-7-5 to the French duo of Chardy and Martin. So uh, too bad they couldn't get uh, the win. I think that's kind of a fun partnership and one that maybe is almost like a trial for Davis Cup later this year between the two of them. Uh, we've got to find someone for Vashik to play doubles with because Daniel Nestor, of course, retired uh, after last season's uh, Rogers Cup. And maybe him and Felix can uh, find their groove. Maybe they'll play a little bit more together throughout the summer hardcore swing. Yeah. And um, But they went out today. And uh, unfortunately for the two of them, they're going to face each other in singles next. Yeah, it's a very unusual dynamic uh, to have at a tournament, but it is nice to see uh, that they are playing doubles together. Uh, certainly, I think, for, for Davis Cup in the future, Vashik Pospisil 100% is the doubles anchor for this country and for Canada uh, at Davis Cup for the future. So maybe you're looking for that additional weapon uh, on the opposite side, or rather on the same side of the court, opposite uh, portion of the court uh, to cover. And I, I think that can be a top singles player who can generate the weapons from the baseline he has such great hands at the net uh it's just difficult for Vashik Pospisil trying to get these reps and singles and you get these difficult draws Felix Ojaliasim is already one of the best players uh in my eyes on the ATP tour uh just rapidly uh rising up the rankings this season that despite big time grand slam results and in a way, it's a little unfortunate that they have to show down here again. We already saw it happen at Wimbledon. They had a competitive four-set match here. So Vashik with his serve and, and his good hands of the net, solid forehand, he can make any singles match competitive, but Felix certainly has to be the favorite. Heavy favorite, and then that would give us another Felix versus Milos match, which yes. would be uh, super fun to watch. Poor Milos, she's going to feel like such the outsider, though, in that matchup because the crowd is going to be full throttle, I'm sorry to say, for uh, for hometown uh, Felix Ojealiasim. Yeah, and, and rightly so. This is his coming out party. Denis Shapovalov had that two years ago unexpectedly, of course. Uh, in, in this scenario, the Montreal crowd has, has been waiting to ascend on Jerry Park and watch the kid FAA because uh, we've been hearing about him all year. We've been watching him produce such fantastic tennis at such a young age. Interesting sad, actually, that I read about the ATP Tour. This is a first for Canada. First time ever we've had four Canadian men ranked inside the top 100. And uh, you think if Vashik Pospisil uh, is playing more singles, building that there. ranking, he could get back to the top 100. Braden cracking in uh, to be that fourth player. Uh, he did lose today, by the way, to Tommy Paul, but uh, he is back inside those top one, uh, for the first time, rather, inside that top 100. And we know Milos is a staple. Felix is there to stay. So his Dennis, uh, speaking of which, Shapovalov, uh, kind of snapping out of his funk in Montreal with a nice win today. Yeah, nice to see him beat Herbert 6-3, 7-5. And you could tell he was super happy to be back playing in Montreal where things kind of all got started for him two years ago in 2017. Uh, with his run to the semifinals there. And he's, it's funny between him and Felix. I mean, Felix is the one who's born in Montreal, right? Who's French Canadian as well, Quebecois. And yet, Chapeau's sort of personality and his game, to me, is more kind of suited to the Montreal crowd and that flair and that drama. And uh, he was able to, you know, rein it in tonight and, and use it at key moments. And that was good. And at the end, just a big smile, a little bit of relief in there, too, given yeah. the way, as you alluded to, that he's been playing lately. But 
but just so happy to get a win in front of that crowd again. He may not be from Quebec, but they've certainly adopted him as one of their own after the way he played two years ago. Uh, And it's funny, two years ago when he was having that big run, uh, Felix wasn't nearly where he is now, Felix being younger than Dennis, but uh, Dennis crashed on Felix's basement couch in that uh, run in 2017. Something tells me he's got somewhat better uh, digs this time around. Yeah, I think he probably uh, is enjoying some nicer accommodations this time around. Uh, Yes, I remember uh, it was funny because Felix at that time a couple years ago had some tennis posters uh, in his room, a tennis poster of Rafael Nadal. As Dennis was getting ready for that match against Rafa, he said, hey, take that that poster down, man. Uh, I don't want to see that. Uh, And then, of course, had had his breakthrough moment and carried that into such fantastic play through the summer at the U.S. Open as well. Felix has done it really all season uh, apart from Grand Slams, so we expect it at Grand Slams as well. And it will get started against Vashik Pospisil. Denis Shapovalov will keep his tournament going and uh, hopefully the momentum going for the rest of the summer. This is a, a strong stretch, which should be, in my opinion, uh, the best point of the season for him and most conducive to his game. Yeah, because, I mean, Clay, as we've said in the past, he's still learning despite, I mean, a semifinal in, I believe, Madrid uh, from 2018. You know, it didn't go very well for him this year. The grass wasn't uh, working for him either, although he was a junior Wimbledon champ. Uh, so hardcourt, for sure, for him is going to be his, his bread and butter. And if he's going to rediscover the game this year, uh, no better place than in Montreal where he's got those good memories and, and that should carry him forward. Yes, and uh, just to run down a couple other results, Stan Wawrinka against Grigor Dimitrov was a heavyweight first-round match. Stan uh, working his way through that one in straight sets. He's now tallied four consecutive wins over Grigor Dimitrov. Wawrinka's another fan favorite wherever he goes, so it's nice to see him moving on. Joe Willie Sanga, I thought he'd been playing nice tennis in Washington, but it's an early exit for him. Couldn't keep it going, and the two French wildcards, uh, Mladenovic in Toronto and Sanga in, in Montreal, unable to justify those uh, been given to them, but uh, so it goes. And uh, Vavrinka, although on paper it looked like a cool matchup, I mean, Dimitrov has just been struggling so hard that uh, I would have been surprised if, if Stan didn't come through on uh, on that one today. Yes, uh, that's uh, true as well. A couple other results I'll just give you. Richard Gasquet uh, defeating his uh, fellow countryman Benoit Perrin straight sets. Roberto Bautista Gook getting past uh, Bernard Tomic. No surprise there. And uh, Jan Leonard Schiff was the one, by the way, who beat uh, Joe Wilfried Sanga. Uh, moving on here, Nick Kyrgios is a name who is in the draw, and I gather he's arrived in Montreal. He's got a tough first round match actually against Kyle Edmund, but uh, it, it's pretty incredible that uh, just this past week in Washington, picking up his second 500 event ATP title of the season. How is he able to just flip this switch? And when he is interested, play such great tennis? I don't know. Yeah, we cannot avoid. I know the tournament's done and we're in Rogers Cup mode, but we cannot avoid talking about this. And some people are going to love hearing about Curious, and other people are already probably tuning it down, being like, oh, why are these guys talking about that jerk? <laughs> Rolling their eyes. But you know what? Whether you like him or hate him, whether you love him or, or whatever the case may be, you cannot avoid talking about him and you can't avoid talking about his tennis accomplishments this past week winning this this pretty big event. His potential to me, unfortunately, gets overshadowed by his need to speak out and say these these you know ridiculous things that just tarnish what otherwise should be very positive for a young player that has so much talent. I mean, I've written, I've got a like column and a dislike column, and whenever I start moving over to one, he does something to draw me to the other side, you know? So 
really good with kids signing autographs, interacting with them, interacting with the fans, as we saw on Match Point in successive matches in DC, where he's asking where he should place his serve on yeah. Match Point. I have never seen that before from anyone. I kind of like that. I'm not going to lie. I kind of like that. Uh, he's got a flashy game. I don't mind that either. Underhand serves, tweeners, bring it on. I don't mind that kind of stuff. He's an entertainer. We need entertainers in the sport. Any sport needs those kinds of uh, men and women. But then on the other side, I mean, I'll let you take the dislike column because there's plenty of things there that rub, pe- rub people the wrong way. Yeah, well, firstly, uh, I think currently his current relationship with the media is definitely terrible. Uh, he's brash in press conferences. And, you know, maybe maybe there have been moments where the media has unfairly criticized him in the past for certain behavior, but he's never warmed himself to them. So that relationship is just not there. It's not established. Yeah, and I'd say he deserves that criticism. I, I can't think of any moments where really the media was too hard on him. And in fact, sometimes I think the media goes easy on him because of the talent and they let that sort of supersede, you know, the, the behavior on the side that just not acceptable of a professional. Yes. Uh, and, and then you get to the on-court behavior. Uh, racket smashing. Look, we've seen from other players. I've seen him throw a chair before. You've seen him sort of yap at, at chair umpires and, and you know, profanity-laced type of tirades, knocking over water bottles, this sort of thing. We've seen outbursts from other players. That's not outside the norm. But uh, I remember a couple stretches where it felt like week to week we were getting something new from Nick Curios. He has, has to get by, fined by every other event. Uh, clay court season, he was a disaster. So uh, that's problematic. And especially when it's getting brought up, he's aware of it. You know, I, I don't know if it's sort of mentally kind of breaking down on the court when things aren't going your way, uh, lack of professionalism, which he speaks about in terms of himself, honestly, but we haven't really seen an improvement. Yeah, maybe it's like a defense mechanism or something that he just goes back and reverts to that mode when things aren't going well, and then he can yeah. just blame it on, well, I don't really care, you know what I mean? Right. Um, look, he's not the first one to, to use bad language, to throw chairs, to act like a, a baby on court. We've seen that before. Imagine if social media and Twitter and cell phones existed in the days of, you know, Nastasi and McEnroe mm. and, and a young Andre Agassi as well, you know, among others. So in, in some ways, it's unfortunate because everything he does is going to get captured. Yeah. But then he doesn't make it easy on himself. I mean, that podcast he did earlier this year where he was trashing all three greats of the game in one way, shape or form. You're basically going to offend every tennis fan out there who aligns with one of those three, if not multiples of those three greatest of all time players. And, you know, even recently doing things like crossing out Novak Djokovic's name on a young fan's T-shirt. I know he thinks he's just kind of playing. Yeah. But to me, it comes across, and I think to most people, it comes across as incredibly disrespectful. And kudos to Novak Djokovic. Hasn't said anything about it. Hasn't contributed. Hasn't put any fuel on the fire. I would just leave it alone as well because I think 99% of the people out there are going to say, you're going too far here. That's not the kind of tennis player that we can get behind. Yeah, and, and that's what's unusual about this. I can't even call it a rift because it's Nick Kyrgios going out of his way. It's to, one-sided. It, one-sided, just badmouth uh, the world number one Novak Djokovic. Djokovic, I, I mean, they've only played a couple of times, Djokovic, 
from what I understand in those matches, was not rude to him. He's never said anything impress bad about Nick Kyrgios. So why is Kyrgios so content to to trash Novak in the press? Is a little bizarre to me. He likes being this polarizing figure in tennis. He does. And he's not the first. He's not the only. And uh, we were talking earlier. It'd be kind of fun to discuss who are some other polarizing figures in the sport, either current or past, that have divided people. Because Kyrgios does have you know lots of people that support him or want to support him. Yeah. Who are some other people? Who have you got on your list as polarizing tennis figures? Well, I the biggest uh, and key name on my list, he got to world number one actually in the 90s. He's from Chile, is Marcelo Rios, uh, who is a fantastic player from Chile. World number one, 1998 was the special year. He reached the finals of the Australian Open there. He won Indian Wells. He won Miami. Uh, he won the Italian Open that year. Fantastic year of tennis. If you go to this guy's Wikipedia page, though, the, the list of controversies, is, is longer than the list of tennis accomplishments. I, I think he was always running in trouble with the law. It was, you know, weekly incident after weekly incident. You hear stories about him accidentally, like, running over his personal trainer with his Jeep at one point, like, punching a taxi driver in the nose. I don't all, remember these. I believe you. I just this, don't remember these ones. All this crazy stuff from Marcelo Rios. Absolute firecracker, complete temper. Uh, apparently, there's a story about him trying to moon some reporters mm, outside. Nice of an apartment at one point when they were bugging him. Just absolutely ludicrous, off-the-cuff behavior. Uh, and yet he reached world number one. I was growing up around the time that he was playing. I was uh, in, in high school, I believe. Uh, and uh, I don't remember ever being drawn to uh, Marcelo Rios in any way, shape, or form in terms of enjoying just his personality. There was yeah. nothing about it that made me want to support him, uh, despite the fact that he did get... I forgot that he got to number one in the world, yeah. Right, and, and he would have had a pretty large contingent of South American fans. He was the first, I believe, and only Chilean player to ever get to world number one. So that's a, quite an impressive accomplishment. But then you have this very brash personality who's always getting into trouble. Certainly a polarizing figure. Uh, you know, he did have a huge fan base, but uh, running into trouble every other week. I got to know who who's front and center on your list. Yeah, I put John McEnroe on mine, which is maybe more of a traditional, yep. like typical kind of answer. But, you know, my first memories of watching tennis when I was maybe six, seven years old with my dad were watching John McEnroe and Jimmy Connors towards the end of their careers. But they still acted like total brats. And for some reason, as a kid, I was like drawn to that. And I had a little bit of a temper too when I was young. I've been known to throw a racket or two in my in my childhood years playing tennis. And so it kind of drew me to watching them. And they had charisma. They definitely had charisma, which I don't know if you can say about Marcelo Rios, but they had a charismatic personality. When I was also younger and McEnroe transitioned into his time as a broadcaster, I initially really enjoyed hearing his voice and his perspective. Nowadays, I got to be honest, not so much. I feel like he's out of touch with, with uh, what's going on in the men's and women's games. Uh, doesn't seem to me like he really does his homework before the matches. So he was polarizing as a player with those antics. And I think he's polarizing as a broadcaster. I think more casual or infrequent tennis fans enjoy listening to him. And I think those of us who are more plugged in kind of think you're not really doing your due diligence when you go in to prepare for a match and you're just kind of showing up and collecting a pretty hefty paycheck because of your name. So I think it divides people as well as in his playing days. 
now in his broadcasting career too. Yes, uh, I'd certainly agree with that. And uh, part of so many fantastic rivalries, I think Jimmy Connors could probably fit the mold of one of those polarizing figures as well. The, you can... the funny thing, sorry, is, you yeah. know, and I've met both of them in my years as a reporter. Uh, Jimmy Connors, super nice guy, called everyone in the media room by their first name. Wow. He got your name like right away. Yeah. I'm like, oh my God, Jimmy Connors just called me Mike. Like, that's really <laughs> cool. Yeah. Uh, John McEnroe, when I met him and interviewed him once in Hamilton, Ontario, of all places, where he was playing an exhibition at Cops Coliseum. It was early afternoon, but it looked like he just rolled out of bed. Okay. He was kind of rolling his eyes like, oh, you're giving me real questions. I got to think about this. <laughs> yeah. And then he said Canada would have a top 10 player if the game was played on ice. So uh, that's, well. Which at the time, it kind of looked like it may be true. But yeah, look what we've true. done. Look what we've done since then. And if that brings us back now to the Rogers Cup, hopefully some big time uh, results for the rest of 2019 that push some of our male players uh, back towards, you know, back towards the top 10 for Milos. And on the female side, continue to bring Bianca Andreescu uh, into that realm as well. Yes, exactly. And it all starts uh, really here uh, with Rogers Cup, our home tournament in Toronto, where we are located at Viva Center and Montreal at uh, Cooper. Rogers National Bank. Uh, both great opportunities for all the Canadians front and center. This has been day two of the Matchpoint Canada podcast uh, for Rogers Cup. And you can find us on Twitter at Matchpoint Canada. We will talk to you for day three as well.